Welcome to Financial Discretion Advised. I'm Abram Berkemeyer. I'm Tyler Hafford. Let's cue the music. Hey everyone, thanks for thanks for joining us. Uh, first podcast that Abram and I are in different locations. Abram's in the Portland office. I'm up in the Bangor office. Abram, how are you? Doing well. I'm doing well. I'm uh, happy to have some nice paintings behind me. Like you have some nice paintings behind you. Yep. It looks like you're part of the team now. It's a good thing. Yeah. And uh, I'll I'll do a little segue for everyone uh, who pays attention to our podcast. We do a stock uh, pick at the end of it. We did one last podcast when we had Craig on. Um, so I'm, saying we, I'm we saying we. Didn't. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I'm saying we skip that this week, and we can. We're we're looking to have Craig on on uh, an upcoming podcast. Maybe we can extend it out till then. Mostly because Craig is is winning at the moment, and hoping that his stock takes a nosedive. Um, so uh, everyone, thanks thanks for joining us today. We're going to go over investment planning strategies. Um, some things that are out there, some kind of rules of thumb that the industry has put out, we're going to address, uh, some different, different strategies, especially if you're kind of a do it yourselfer, uh, things to pay attention to. Um, but Abram, why don't you kick us off? Yeah. I think the first one that comes up in every financial plan is getting on a, a routine investment plan and, yep. You know, it's pretty simple. It's just setting up a schedule that you're going to contribute to your account. So that way it's going on, it's going all the time throughout yeah. the year, you know, it keeps you accountable. So that way, you know, you're not going in and manually doing it, say once a month or every two weeks or whatever the schedule might be. Yeah. Just setting that up, you know, keeps money getting pumped into the market over time. And it makes it easy on your budget because, you know, now you're not looking at, you know, yeah. what you have left over at the end of the month, you're building it into your budget because you know this money's coming out on a, on a predetermined date. So it helps keep you accountable and um, really leads into one of the big major investment principles, which is dollar cost averaging into the markets. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, there's a couple of things before we, we get into the dollar cost averaging that I like about kind of routine investing. One, if you listen to our end of the year podcast, Abram talks a lot about baby steps. Um, and starting to build those behaviors. If you are creating a routine system to get money starting to be invested, you're going to one, build that behavior. And two, you're going to build behaviors around your cash flow of, all right, this is something I need to spend money on. Um, I also like to think of the idea of paying yourself first uh, when you get paid. So if you're setting aside this as almost an expense, right? You know, X amount is going to go into my investment account every time I get paid, uh, put that at the top of the list and work around it. Um, and as you start to build those, those strategies and those behaviors, um, you'll start to see those accounts grow and it, and it will start to become more, a little, little easier to say, all right, I'm going to put this extra amount in there. Um, but we can get into the dollar cost averaging because every time you're starting that behavior, you're, you're putting the same amount of money in and a regular interval into the market. And we're not really paying attention to what the prices of the market are, where, where the market's at at that point. Um, we are just going to put that money in there. And that's going to benefit us because we're going to buy some shares higher. We're going to buy some shares lower. But what, what we're going to do over the long term of that is get the average kind of uh, buy-in price. And, and it eliminates, you know, you hear the old saying, time in the market will always be timing the market. Um, staying regimented like that, staying disciplined, 
uh, will benefit you uh, as you kind of build out that strategy. Right. Yeah. It really goes down to the whole, whole concept of, you know, if you had $10,000 today and depending on where the market's at, you know, if the market's at all time highs, you know, could keep climbing higher. Maybe you yep. put the money in, maybe you make, make the best of your money because you put it in and the market kept going up. Maybe the market goes down over the course of the next year and you put your money in and, you know, you didn't really hit the best timing. So, you know, if you spread that out, the $10,000 out over the course of the year and you put a little bit in at a time, if the market keeps going up, then the initial smaller amount that you put in still benefits the most because the market continued to go up and everything right. kept putting in still benefits because it's going up. It's not a, you wouldn't make as much money as if you put the whole sum in in the beginning. But you have to realize that you don't know what the market's going to do. Right, right. Yeah, you you kind of reduce your risk on it. And, you know, I think this is a good thing to, to talk about. It wasn't on our list, but trying to time the market is is impossible, right? It's so difficult to do. If you would have talked to me last January and said, hey, you know, is coronavirus going to tank the, the stock market in March? I'd probably say, no, I don't. I wouldn't expect that. And if you talked to me in March when the market was down 35%, if you, you know, told me, well, by year end, the you know the S and P will be back up seventy percent from where we are today, and I'd say no, that'll probably be too quick. Um, I would have been wrong, very wrong in both of those cases. And you know, I don't want to say I'm an expert, but Abram and I live in this world; we pay attention to it every day. Um, you know, as a do-it-yourselfer, you're probably not spending eight hours a day talking and researching the stock market. Uh, trying to get that right is is going to be detrimental. Um, so using these types of strategies yet, yeah, like Abram said, you may not see the giant run up if we just invested it all right at the right moment in time. Um, but you're also not, you're, you're limiting your, uh, you know, chances of losing it all, of putting it in at the wrong time. Right. Um, yeah. That's so. an area where the market does go down. You're going to be really happy that you dollar crossed average because right. you put a little bit in at the top and you're buying in as the market continues to decline, which is going to give you a greater long-term rate of return. So that whole dollar cost averaging really, you know, like you said, doesn't shoot for the stars. Doesn't, doesn't say that we're going to lose the most either kind of best middle ground that you can, that you can take through an investment strategy approach. Yeah. And I think, you know, avoiding time in the market falls into the the next thing we had on the list here. And that was avoiding fads uh, in the market. And most recently, I mean, it would have been difficult to turn a TV on in the past few weeks and not see GameStop kind of flashing in the headlines, right? And um, anyone who listened to the market commentary that came out from Penobscot Financial Advisors got some good insight from Sam and Jim on this. But essentially what was happening is that the GameStop, there's a number of positions out there or stocks out there that have a large short position on them. Um, And what that means is when you buy a stock, you can buy it. And, and you are long the stock. You want that stock to go up. Um, or you can short the stock. And by doing that, you are essentially betting against it and you want it to go down. And that's how you're going to make your money. Uh, you know, Reddit, these Reddit boards, so a bunch of retail investors, smaller investors, uh, found position stocks out there that had large short positions on them. And organized and threw a ton of money into that stock. Um, the stock went up. And in by doing that, the short positions, people who are betting against the stock, then have to turn around and purchase the stock to get out of their positions, to hedge their bet and cut their losses, which creates this giant artificial run-up. Um, 
very dangerous, not, not something as a, a long-term investor you want to be playing in. But I think it's important too, to, to take a look at your portfolio and say, do I own anything that has large short positions on it? Um, because you may be seeing some leveraging that you weren't expecting, um, or at least you, you weren't trying to, to get that exposure, but. Yeah. And you know, there's definitely the, you see the stories in the news of the people that, you know, made X amount of dollars on the GameStop scenario. And it sounds like it's too good to be true. And that's because it is for the average investor. You know, there's the whole scenario with GameStop. There are definitely people that got in late, bought GameStop for really high thinking it's going to keep going up because yep. they think, you know, the strategy and, and the, the fact that the big hedge funds have to purchase more of the stock, they just see that as like a, a sound thing, or maybe their friend just told them, you know, just buy it and, you know, it's going to keep going and things yeah. of that nature. So, you know, um, those people that eventually, you know, they bought it high thinking it's going to keep going higher and then the stock comes back down. Those are the guys that are holding the money bags at, at the end yeah. of it and, and lost a lot, lost, you know, lost their shoes. Yep. Uh, they they and- the strategy too late. You know, it really is a, a really big timing thing. Um, it's really not something that anybody should be doing for any long-term sound uh, no. sound investment. And it's something that, you know, you don't put more money in than you're willing to lose in a scenario like that. Yeah. What well, gets lost in those headlines, um, if you kind of do a little research on, you know, these online boards and people that are trying to use these types of strategies to, to hit kind of big gains is, you know, for every one GameStop situation, there are thousands of bad um, investments that are made and people losing significant amounts of money trying to hit a home run on, on, one, on one stock position. People losing their entire life savings, entire retirement savings, trying to kind of hit this home run. And um, like you said, Abram, you know, we saw this, this move up and the, the big talk, and I think a lot of this was, that retail investors could move the market in a way that larger institutional big money uh, tends to do it. And I think one that spooked larger institutional investors, and we saw a bit of a pullback in the market because of it, but it was short-lived, right? It was a few days of being able to do this. We saw GameStop run up and then completely fall uh, back down. Now, still, is it valued higher than you know what analysts think GameStop is? Probably. Um, but there's too much volatility there to make it a sound investment. You know, the, the valuation on that, that company just doesn't line up with the fundamentals. You're, you're getting into a lot of dangerous spots when you're trying to play that game. And um, certainly I think if you're looking at a long-term strategy, that'd be something you make sure to avoid, to avoid. Yeah. And, you know, for all the talk of these, these companies like GameStop and, and the others that have been thrown into the mix uh, like AMC and, and, and more, but like, like all those, you know, they really aren't representative of the market. Everybody talks about it as the market and just because yeah. it's big happening in the market. It's not actually the market, um, you know, they, over, the, over the whole broad breadth of, of investment options that you have, really not making a big impact on your average portfolio just because this was happening in a certain scenario with extreme, extreme cases. So, yeah. Uh, you know. And I think, I think, in, in, like I said at the beginning of kind of talking about the fad stuff, taking a peek at your stocks, you know, if you have a few stocks that have done really well, take a peek at, and see if there is short positions out there. If there's a high percentage. If you're seeing, you know, 60, 70% um, uh, of short positions out there on your on that, that one position, 
you may be getting into something that's a little more dangerous um, because because there's going to be a lot of uh, different uh, influences on that stock that are not going to be, geez, I really like this stock because of the fundamentals and I bought it. Um, I know in a review of of some of the stocks that you know we we take a look at, um, we noticed there was higher short positions that we just weren't expecting. Um, caused us to have com- some conversations of, all right, or, you know, should we be holding these? Are these are these actually good investments? So I think as a even if you're doing this yourself, um, maybe take a peek at what you're invested in and and just make sure that everything's kind of lined up the way you think it is. Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, let's dive into to. This is a little bit in that same vein. It's, you know, the the discussion around active management versus passive um, investing. And, you know, so in the past, in the passive investing world, you're looking at um, buying indices, indices, you're going to, you're not going to be in there every day making changes, Uh, your long term buy and hold the old Warren Buffett kind of strategy where you're going to buy something like an S&P index and let it sit. Um, the, the contrast to that is hiring someone or doing your own active management where you're in there uh, trying to kind of beat those benchmarks of the, of the market and take advantages of, of things that are going on. Um, you know, we are an investment advisory firm. So we subscribe to a bit more active management uh, in our strategies. Um, but, you know, I think it's important for a number of reasons to have active management. There's a number of things that happen. Today, we're in the lowest interest rate environment uh, that we've seen. Um, Making sure your portfolio is set up to take advantage of that, um, to make sure your duration on the bond side uh, is ready to take advantage of that. Um, Are you setting up to hedge against inflation, which may be coming down the road? Those types of things can really be benefited from an active management style where the passive is going to not necessarily ignore it, but you're not really paying attention to, to kind of situational events that uh, you want to make sure you're positioned for. Yeah. And I'd say some of the, probably some of the best investment strategies are a bit of a hybrid between active and passive. I think the, on the most polar extreme, you can think of active as somebody that's in their account trading every week or every day. And, you know, you know, that, that's been statistically proven through, through various studies that, you know, you don't actually get a premium on your, on your dollar. You don't, you don't generate any excessive returns through active management. Um, And then generally the people that are more passive end up making more, uh, more money over the long run. But there is an argument to be made that, you know, you can take a passive approach, while still making some active management decisions, which I'd say is probably more where we line up as a firm. Yep. Um, you know, we are definitely a long-term buy and hold uh, company. That, that's definitely our, our investment philosophy, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't be making changes because, you know, any, any mutual fund is going to be, is going to have a period where, you know, they might be at the top of their game compared to their peers and they might be the best fund out there. And then they might go through a period of two or three years with the manager change and maybe their performance suffers because of that, or, you know, they increase expenses and they're no longer competitive compared to their peers. And that sort of management, you know, has active components to it where you need to be routinely monitoring those things, making changes as, as necessary. But overall, you know, if we're still taking that passive approach where you have your 
asset allocation that you want to achieve over the long run because you you know that's going to be the that's the number one indicator of how much risk you're taking on is going to be your the first thing is your percentage of stocks to bonds and then you know how do we backfill how much of that stock we're going to own in u.s versus international how much of that bonds we're going to own in investment grade versus high yield and um and what specific investments you own you know those are things that need to be actively monitored um and you know maybe you're not trading out a fund every single day or every week, but you are monitoring it and making changes as appropriate throughout the year. So there is an active component to it, but you know, as far as the the two extreme goes, I'd say most, most advisors are probably operating on some sort of, some sort of hybrid model there where you're mostly passive, but you understand that, you know, you need to make those changes as appropriate because it might be prudent to, to switch out investments. Yeah. Um, I think you hit a couple things. Um, you know, active management doesn't mean day trading. Um, active management just means that we're not buying, you know, positions today and not checking on it in the next 30 years. Um, you know, you, you want to make sure you're making some, some tweaks in there, but I, there's also another piece of this that, especially if you're doing it yourself these days, most platforms are allowing you to buy ETFs, um, with no commissions. So there's, there's this high drive and, and, I'm not saying that's a bad strategy, but you can purchase a number of ETFs, um, which normally aren't actively managed, um, and build out a portfolio. It may be worth looking at the expense ratios and looking at mutual funds in areas that are just so difficult or 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 you know complex that hiring someone in a mutual fund to actively manage that part of the portfolio for you may make a lot of sense. Um, you know, if you're looking at futures of commodities, um, I don't know enough about, you know, wheat sales in, in the middle of the United States to be an expert on that. Hiring an active manager in that space can benefit the diversification of my portfolio. And I understand that, all right, this may be more expensive for me to incorporate, but it's going to give me someone who knows what they're doing in that space. Yeah, certainly. That's a good yep. point. Um, all right. Let me pull up that list. Um, <laughs> we're all planning is where we're going next. There we go. Yeah. Um, all right. So yeah, been building up your portfolio. Let's take a you know retirement account for example, and you you finally call the boss. You say I'm out. I'm 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 quitting. I'm done retiring. Um, and we've got to start pulling money out. How much can we pull out? How much can we sustain throughout retirement? Um, certainly as financial planners, we use tools like Marty Carlo analysis and things like that to, to determine that number. But there are some rules of thumb out there and you may have heard of the old 4% rule. Uh, I think, you know, back in the day, it was a 5% rule. Um, Abraham, you want to kind of talk to us about that? Yeah, so 4% rule is really simple. You take your portfolio value, multiply it by 4%. That's how much you can withdraw every year and your money should last you for the length of your retirement. Uh, you know, in the past, like, like Tyler mentioned, may have been a 5% rule. If life expectancy is shorter and you've got a sum of money, you can take out more of it because you don't need your money to last as long. Now as you know, medical advancements and folks are living longer, healthier lives, it goes down to a 4% rule. Yeah. Since, you know, you're going to be taking less money out of that portfolio, but, as a rule of thumb, that's kind of the, you know, the standard that people throw around, 
you know, might be good, might be bad. Some folks definitely 4% kind of ends up nailing it on the head going yep. through the financial planning process. Some folks, you know, they might not necessarily need that 4%. You know, if they've got legacy goals and don't spend a lot of money, then why take all that money out of your retirement account just to sit in a, in a savings account and want to let it grow and take out less than the 4%? Or there might be folks that say, hey, I don't care. The kids are, the kids will get the house and I'm going to spend everything, everything that I have in these accounts. And, you know, if you say I can take out 6% reasonably and, and live on that, then that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, it's, seems like maybe a good place to start. Um, but, you know, I, I hate dealing with things that I don't know. So in financial planning, we, we do a much more in depth. All right. This is how much we think you can spend. Um, throughout the, the length of your retirement, that 4%, uh, good starting point. But you know, what if inflation really ramps up? Does that 4% cover what we need to anymore? Is it, is it not enough? You know, can we sustain it? What if we have some one-off items early on in retirement? Um, but you know, they're just the first few years, can we sustain purchasing those? And then what can we sustain after that? The 4% rule just doesn't allow for much modification to what does that mean in the overall kind of scheme of things. So uh, you may have heard that rule of thumb out there. I think it's a good place to start. Um, but if you're really kind of worried about, gee, so I have enough money here to, to make it to the end, or, you know, is the lifestyle I'm living today really sustainable, you know, long-term? I think that's when engaging someone who can kind of run a financial plan for you may make some sense. And there's some other rules of thumb out there that um, you, you may hear, but it's still worth talking to someone about. And one of those is, and Abram talked about it in the last segment, um, your asset allocation, um, your really, your percentage of stocks to bonds is so important in building out your portfolio and getting that right is so important, uh, for your portfolio. There's the old rule of thumb that, uh, you should take your age, subtract it from a hundred, and that should give you your um, allocation to stocks in your portfolio. So if you're uh, if you're 40 years old, uh, you should have 60% in in stocks and the rest in bonds and alternatives. Now, that's great, but everyone's risk tolerance is different. Everyone's financial plan is different. Everyone's goals are different. And while 60% might be a good place to start and may make sense for a 40 year old. Um, all of the things I just named could could drive you to want to be in a different asset allocation. I have plenty of people I work with who are in their 40s who are just scared to death of the market. And that allocation actually needs to be closer to 40%. Um, and then I have some four-year-olds who are just, you know, I am ready to put the pedal down and see how much money we can make in the stock market. And that allocation is closer to 90%. Um, so I think, you know, the rules of thumb that are out there are good starting places uh, if you're doing it yourself, but engaging, uh, with a financial planner may be beneficial to hammer out. All right. What is my, my actual uh, allocation that I should be in? Yeah. Yeah. That rule of thumb, I think of the 40 year old scenario. And, you know, if I got a client that's playing catch up and we're trying to earn as much as we can, we're not going to earn as much as we might be able to, if we, right. You know, 60% of the portfolio to stocks, like you said, maybe the 80 to 90% is is more appropriate if they can a stomach the risk and b are trying to achieve you know higher long term rates of return so that they can 
you know, get that compound interest working for them more so than if they had a lower expected rate of return, which you generally get when you invest in less stocks and more bonds. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it is all, you know, up to the person there. There are definitely conversations that I have with clients. There's still, you know, still have plenty of time to take on risk prior to retirement, but you know, they might be well-funded enough where they don't need to. And they just want to see a steadier rate of return going up until retirement. And so, you yep. know, that rule of thumb ends up not fitting them and, you know, we just take a different approach to it. So very yep. on that one as well. Yep. Um, you know, I, I say it a, a lot. The best financial plan is the one that you feel comfortable with, the one you can put your head on the pillow at night and fall asleep to. And, and um, you know, if, if holding on to too much risk in the portfolio, back in March in 2020, we saw a, a sizable pullback in the market. If you are losing sleep over those types of dips, if you are panicking a bit, if you are, if you are working with an advisor and you're calling them and, and, and saying, geez, you got to sell me out because if, if that is too much, then you have to make those adjustments to reduce the risk on the portfolio because it's not, it's not lining up to you uh, as an investor. Um, I also find a lot of clients who are holding on to too much risk to reach their goals. And the conversation is not so much around, um, all right, why don't we increase the risk and try to to, to gain more returns here. It is, you are way ahead of track on, on what you need to earn to right. get to the end here. Let's take the risk off the table. Why? That's by lowering the amount of risk that you're taking on because you're not right. yourself to the major drops in the market as much. Yep. Anticipating as much. Yep. Um, so, you know, I think those rules, like I said, those rules of thumb, and you'll see them all over the internet, good places to start. Um, but don't, don't kind of uh, treat them as the truth to, to every situation. Um, it's going to be really individualized to, to you, your goals, your situation, your risk tolerance, um, your investment style. So, um, you know, it's, they're good to, good to do some research on, but, but certainly um, apply them correctly. Yeah. And the, the last topic I wanted to cover today is along also along the lines of withdrawal planning and, you know, we get clients with accounts, different different account tax statuses. You know, maybe they've got their pre-tax assets, their Roth assets, their taxable account, and they just say, "Hey, I need it's my first year of retirement. Where, which account am I going to pull this money from? Or yeah. I am retired and I want to, you know, aggressively pay off the mortgage to save the interest. You know, maybe I'm not earning that much more in the markets, and I just want to get rid of the mortgage and capitalize on that that interest rate savings." Um, where do I pull that money from? And, uh, you know, obviously the, the conversation might be a little bit different for a lot of different folks. There's a lot of different factors that go into everybody's situation, but, you know, just, just that, that say that, that mortgage pay down scenario, if you're taking out pre-tax assets throughout the year, that's money taxed as income and you're going to pay down an extra $50,000 because you got that left on the mortgage. Not a good idea to take that from your pre-tax right. assets because you're going to stack that up and add that onto your income for the year and push you into higher tax brackets and end up paying more. Um, so withdrawal planning strategies in that respect would go, we'd start talking about, oh, well, you know, you've got, you've got the Roth assets or maybe you have a taxable account where you can take money out with a much lower tax liability. That's going to help you out over the long run. Cause we're not going to take a tax hit today, you know, and, and pay the government more money than you need to over the course of your retirement. So, um, there's all those different considerations as well with when it comes to withdrawal planning, obviously it gets a little bit more complex and a little bit more, uh, fine tuned to everybody's different situation and what types of assets they have. Yep. But like we talked about on the last podcast that I'd recommend everybody go out back and listen to would be 
you know, Roth conversion strategy. If you're implementing that in the first couple of years of retirement, you know, taking out income from pre-tax assets after you just took a bunch of pre-tax assets and paid taxes on them for a Roth conversion may not be the best idea if you have other, uh, other assets to use, such as a taxable account. So, yep. Um, and another scenario that I see with, with clients in, in retirement, um, who are required to take their RMDs, um, where they're taking their RMDs out of the account, out of their retirement account, they don't necessarily need the money. They're being forced to do this. They're in extremely low income situations, right? We're just taking the RMDs. You've got some social security coming in, but, uh, you know, our overall income is, is quite low for the household. You can be taking advantage of, of a long-term capital gains tax rate of 0% if you are in a low enough income situation. So being able to say, all right, where, where is our income going to fall? That taxable account, if you have long-term gains, if you're holding positions over a year there, can tend to be a good place to start taking out assets if you need it, if you need money because it, because you're you're in that lower tax situation or no tax situation. Um so paying attention to that stuff is, I think, really important when you're starting to figure out how much or where should I take money out in retirement. Um, certainly, anytime taxes are involved, I'd recommend talking with an accountant um, about that. But um, certainly something to pay attention to when you're saying, all right, where am I going to take money out? Um, well, the, that's probably the biggest area of tax planning that we do as financial advisors, because obviously we aren't accountants. You know, we can't you know, where we generally don't go in and tell you exactly which credits you're going to qualify for deductions or, you know, what's going to shake out better. But the tax planning piece is, is generally, you know, if this is what it looks like, if we spread out tax liability by doing Roth conversions today and how that can lower your tax liability throughout retirement based on, based on your goals and, you know, things of that nature. And it's a, it is a really important piece for, you know, for folks that are looking to withdraw assets. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Um, Awesome. Well, we're going to skip the stock game, like I said, because uh, I don't want to name Craig the winner just yet. Um, but I want to thank everyone for, for listening to this. Um, you know, this is just the tip of the iceberg on investment planning strategies, and we will be doing more and more episodes where we start to throw more of these strategies in. But as always, if you have questions, comments, anything like that, please leave them below um, or feel free to, to find uh, Aber and I's email on our website, uh, panopticalfinancialadvisors.com. Um, and send us an email. Uh, we're happy to kind of respond if we can or, or point you in the right direction. Um, please subscribe, share, tell everyone you know about us. Uh, hopefully we're helping some folks out there. Um, thanks, for, thanks for joining. Yeah, take care, everybody. The foregoing content reflects the opinions of Penobscot Financial Advisors and is subject to change at any time without notice. Content provided herein is for informational purposes only and should not be used or construed as investment advice or a recommendation regarding the purchase or sale of any security. There is no guarantee that the statements, opinions, or forecasts provided herein will prove to be correct. Thank you.